Hi there, I'm Janine, and you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, and this is Get the Funk Out. Joining me today is best-selling author and New York Times contributor Pamela Druckerman. She investigates the modern 40s, marriage, the midlife crisis, owning what you know, and cracking a personal fashion code. In her new book of essays, There Are No Grown-Ups, A Midlife Coming-of-Age Story. It's my pleasure to welcome to this week's show, Pamela Druckerman. I loved reviewing your book. So give me a little backstory. What led you to write this? I turned 40, <laughs> and I noticed that all the waiters who had previously called me Mademoiselle, because I live in Paris, mm-hmm. almost at the same time, they all started calling me Madame. Oh, and no. there were all these little changes. Like I went to buy some face cream, and the saleswoman kind of steered me toward the anti-aging cream for the first time. Ah. And I thought, <laughs> what is this? What is going on? Nice. Good God. <laughs> You're like, this can't be me. <laughs> it can't be me. I was just a mademoiselle like last week. I said, literally, I have milk that hasn't expired yet from when you called me mademoiselle. Oh, my gosh. So funny. Now, when you were writing this book, did you have a clear vision of where you were going or did it kind of evolve? That is such a good question. Um, I, you know, this book started as a column, so I had this 800-word column that I needed to tra- turn into a 65,000-word book, <laughs> and I wanted to keep the initial spirit of the column, which had lots of bullet points and kind of things you know in your 40s. Um, so what I ended up doing was telling a story, a kind of memoir of my own 40s, and really studying what that was like, but keeping the bullet points. So at the end of each chapter now, there's a kind of little... I don't know if you saw it, but it says, like, you know you're in your 40s when oh, yes. dot, dot, dot. And yes. it has all these kind of observations. Like, yeah. one of them is, you sometimes wake up hungover even when you've had nothing to drink. I love that one. <laughs> I thought that was hysterical. I, I thank you. I, I felt like this, there was this in-between time of life. I mean, you're, you know, as my daughter said to me once, like, Mommy, you're not old, but you're definitely not young anymore. Oh, it's this weird kind of <laughs> old-ish period, yes. new, new old um, Victor Hugo called it the old age of youth. So I wanted to kind of put my finger on the modern uh, modern midlife and try to explain what it is. So I want to ask you something. The name of my show is Get the Funk Out. And <laughs> uh, how, how do you tell people, or maybe from your own experience, how do you stay positive when you are kind of feeling old? You're feeling the midlife coming at you like a runaway train. Okay. I'm not feeling old. I mean, I, basically, when you're 40, yeah. you have, uh, if you're 40 now, you have a 50% chance of living to age 95. So it's not even middle age. Okay. But on the other hand, um, like I thought my um, hearing was going at one point. I thought I was going deaf. Mm-hmm. And I went to the ear doctor and he said, you just have 43-year-old ears now. Like that's, <laughs> like things are starting to wane a little bit. Um, but there are also lots of, and I'm not saying this just to be positive, but there are really a lot of upsides to being in your 40s. And for me, I was always someone who was like a tiny bit clueless. Like I'd, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I was friends with the wrong people and I hadn't quite found my tribe, my friends. And uh, I realized like in the 40s, you can, you can spot narcissists before they ruin your life, not after. Yes. You're kind of better at evaluating people, yeah. judging what's happening. Right. I, I, one thing um, you mentioned in one of the chapters, you know you're in your 40s when you're now the older lady in the improv class. I, I took class at the Groundlings, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm definitely one of the older women in this you class. You were that lady. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I feel young. I think it's, you know, as old as you feel. There are times when I'm checking out groceries and there was this woman, I think she's like 85 at Whole Foods and and she'll say, oh, you look so young. And she'll call me miss. And, you know, it's all in how you look at life. Yeah. But I think there's something off about feeling like you're inside your different age than you look on the outside, which right. I think is a very um, American story that we're encouraged to tell. Like, oh, I might be uh, 48, but I really feel 23. And, and it creates this disconnect. It, it, it's a judgment about what you're supposed to feel like at a certain age. And also, you're not kind of at home in your own body because you feel like you're not represented by your exterior. Yes. And I, I think there's a, there are other approaches that are useful. Yes. So let's talk about those approaches. What advice would you give to people? Well, um, one thing, I I live in France Mm -hmm. uh, as an expat, and I've lived here for a while. And what French women tell me is their kind of aspiration about aging is to try to look like the best version of the age that they are. Oh, I like that. So you don't have this disconnect. You kind of accept your age, but you try to live at the best version. And one of them said, trying to look young is the fastest way to look old. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, I've I've seen that here. I'm in California. I I talk. I have teenage daughters. Like when a mom tries to dress like they're 16, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. She looks like she's kind of straining at something, and she looks unhappy and uncomfortable. I mean, I realized I was I was doing that too. I was walking around looking. You know, when people started calling me Madame, I was kind of walking around looking terrified. <laughs> and what I I and I was like, everyone's staring at me. They're staring at my age, but really, they were just staring at this kind of look of fear on my mm-hmm. face. And what the, these other women kept telling me in France is, um, you know, you have to look like, you have to be comfortable in your own age, that okay. that's critical. Yes. And then you don't look terrified. It's a kind of more relaxing way to age because you can accept that every age has its, has its beauty, has its strength, and you should try to look like who you are. And, if you, and the more you do that, the more you kind of radiate. I like that. So embrace your age. Embrace it and embrace what's specific to you. You kind of, you know, I think we're encouraged at a certain point to sort of like not really look at our own bodies and, you know, act as if there are these kind of no-go zones that Mm -hmm. we don't want to even deal with. Yes. (laughs) And um, what I kind of learned from French women here, not to say they're all perfect or skinny or, or anything, but they know their assets and they know their deficits. They know their own bodies really well and they dress for for their own bodies in a really specific way. And I think that helps, especially, you know, as you reach a certain age, you kind of, you know, generic basics look a little too basic. Now you have to kind of dress for what works for you. You find your own style in in midlife. Yes. Um, So if you could tell the listeners, what made you decide to move to Paris years ago? Um, so I met a man who wasn't even French, <laughs> he's British, <laughs> who happened to be living in Paris because uh, real estate had gotten too expensive in London, and there was this moment where there was, it was much cheaper in Paris, and so I moved here to be with him, and um, 14 years later, I'm still here. Fantastic. And um, yeah. so let's talk about this book. How long did it take you to write this? Uh, start to finish a about three and a half years. It was a journey, this book. I kind of had to live some of my 40s in order to be able to write about it. Yeah, like a research project. 
it was a research project, but it's, a, it's also, you know, it was a tricky book to write because it's part memoir, but I'm a journalist, so it's part um, reporting. I interviewed lots of people who are in this kind of time of life, too. But then I look, there's a lot of research into midlife now. Um, mm-hmm. The U.S. government funds some of it. And so I, I, I kind of wove together all these different elements into what I hope is a good yarn. I really enjoyed it. Um, you've got great advice in here. Um, I want to just pick, pick out a few things. Wise people can see the big picture. They're able to look beyond the problem at hand to grasp the wider context and long-term implications. They're not swept up in the group mind. I like that. Yeah, I'm so glad you seized on that point because it turns out there's this whole science of wisdom and, um, you know, that, that you can define what it is and what the characteristics are. So you don't necessarily become wiser as you get older, but you certainly can. Mm-hmm. I remember, so go ahead. Oh, no, please. So I remember when I was um, interviewing for a job at 23 and somebody said to me, um, how are you with ambiguity? And one thing you point out here is they know that life is ambiguous and complicated. And I feel like that's life is a roller coaster ride. And it's just how you deal with it, you know, the ups and downs and all the road bumps. Yeah. So did you have a good answer for that question? I did. Uh, You know, um, I I didn't mind when curveballs were thrown at me and things were unclear. I kind of like to figure things out at the moment. Yeah, and I got the yeah. job. So, okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I think another part of wisdom is knowing that you will always have imperfect information, mm-hmm. and kind of coping with that, not feeling like the outcome of anything is obvious. You know, there are always unpredictable elements. Right. So, what are some things you would like readers to take away from this book? Um, well, I kind of describe the '40s as a journey from everyone hates me to they're not really thinking about me at all. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> which is um, a bit of a disappointment, but also a bit of a relief because I think, uh, um, you know, you're less self-conscious in your 40s. You are less neurotic. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can take in more information about other people and judge situations and, and other people better. I cite this one study in the book. It's called Reading the Mind and the Eyes, where you're shown a photograph of somebody's eyes and you have to guess what emotion they're feeling. And people in their 40s and 50s were better than people in any other age group at, at uh, answering the questions on this test. So it's kind of like, it's almost like you become psychic in your 40s or, or clairvoyant. You know, you, all, you get all this information that was never available to you before because you were so busy worried about what everybody else thought of you. Right. And our focus changes. We're, we're much more uh, thinking, you know, I, I feel like as I've gotten older, I'm analyzing and thinking back why I made certain decisions. And I don't know, I analyze everything. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Schopenhauer says the first 40 years provide the commentary. F- sorry. The first 40 years provide the text and the next 30 provide the commentary. And I think yeah, that's I like very that. much what midlife is about. It's kind of you have a critical distance from your own family, from your own, from your own choices that you've made, and you can reflect on them in a way that you couldn't before. And you, you look at your life, the same things you've looked at over and over, but you see more and more in it. And I think it's a fascinating time of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some things you experienced while writing this book? Um, some big moments. Do you have something in mind? Well, you had you had a health scare, obviously. I, I did. I um, was diagnosed with a blood cancer when I was forty-one, and uh, it was a big shock. Mm-hmm. I had three little kids, 
and uh, who are now a bit older. And so uh, it was this definitely a, um, a life-changing moment for me of figuring out how I was going to cope with that. Right. And how are you now? Uh, thank God I'm fine. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, where can people find out more about you and this book? I have a website. It's PamelaDruckerman.com. Mm-hmm. And um, the book is available everywhere books are sold, I hope, I think. Now, I'm a writer as well. And for people that are listening that are writers, uh, do you have any advice for them? I mean, a lot of times we're filled with, you know, self-doubt about the direction we're going or an article or whatever. Um, you talk yeah. about having a th- an article about a threesome. As a sexual experience, the threesome's okay. And it's in the chapter, How to Be Mortal. I mean, how do you kind of just focus on your vision while trying to, you know, deter yourself from criticism and self-doubt? I think you have to accept as a writer that your first draft is going to be terrible. Yeah. Because you have this vision in your head of what you want to say, and then you see what's on the page, and there's this huge gap between the two. Mm -hmm. And you just have to get it down on the page because... um, what you're going to do is work with this first draft and rewrite it and rewrite it. And re- I mean, I probably rewrote every chapter in this book 20, 25 times until I Whoa. got to something I could tolerate. Mm-hmm. But that's what it takes. That is the process. And if you can't handle looking at something bad, you'll never get to something good. Did you always want to be a writer? Uh, I always wanted to be a journalist. I don't think I knew early on that I wanted to write books, Mm -hmm. but it became the kind of natural evolution of what I was going to do, and that British man who I moved to Paris to be with was already writing books himself, so I think that influenced me as well, because he sort of thought all writers eventually have to write books, so I figured I I have to eventually write one too, and now this is book number four. I think it's fantastic. Um, Tell me about your other books. Um, My previous book before this was called Bringing Up Bebe, Mm -hmm. and it was about um, how the French raised children. And it was similar in that it combined my own story, my own experiences, with um, interviews and research. So I think what I, even though I moved to France almost kind of accidentally, it's given me um, a really interesting, almost anthropological perspective on what all, uh, many American assumptions are about how we do things, these kind of stories that are in the culture about how to raise children or how women should age or, um, you know, kind of what, how marriage is, should be structured um, that I wouldn't necessarily have seen if I had stayed in the U.S., but because I was living in a foreign place with different assumptions, it kind of shed light suddenly or illuminated what my own cultural assumptions were. So I love writing about... Um, the cultural differences more than anything just in order to understand what my American assumptions are. It's interesting. I've interviewed a lot of people that are no longer living in America. They live in Paris. Really? Yes. Yes. You're probably like the sixth person I've interviewed. Yes. Uh, oh, that's so funny. I wonder if I know, know the other people. It's, a, it's very, um, France is a very interesting place to be as an American because there are a lot of similarities. It's a, you know, middle-class Western country, and um, on the surface, a lot of things seem very similar, but just below the surface, there are all these fascinating differences. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I could live in France for another 14 years and still keep learning more and more about the place. I love it. I, it's really on my list of of uh, places to go, you know, soon. I've always wanted to go, so. Well, come visit. It's 
this is the perfect season now. It's springtime in Paris. Now, could you it's speak? It's summer by now. Could you speak uh, French fluently before you went? No, I had. Um, I grew up in Miami, so I always studied Spanish, and I had worked as a journalist in Latin America. Mm-hmm. I knew no, almost no French. And uh, nor did I really ever have any desire to live in France or speak French. But I've, um, you know, they say grow where you're planted. And, yes. and I did, and I've been studying France. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's odd because I, you know, a lot of people, Americans who move to Paris do so because they did a semester abroad here or they've always kind of dreamed of France or they loved French food or French culture. And I had none of that none of that kind of love affair with, with France. I just moved here, and I was kind of miserable for the first couple of years. But, um, but yeah. it's worked out. Now I'm, I don't always love it here, but I'm always fascinated. I think it's great. Give me your website one more time. Sure. It's PamelaDruckerman.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much for calling into the show. Thank you so much for having me on. I love your show. Oh, thank you. Congratulations. It's a wonderful book. If you missed any part of this, it will be up on the show blog, getthefunkoutshow.kci.org. And if you want to follow the show, I am on Twitter at moms underscore rock.